All right, we're going we're to go ahead and get started. If uh, you see someone who ends up needing a handout, just come up here and grab one. They're under my bag here. Uh, I'll open with prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into Leviticus chapter 3. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, sending your Son, Jesus, who is the light of the world. You came to walk with our first parents in the cool of the day, in the evening, when they rebelled against you and fell into sin. It wasn't until Jesus, our Savior and your Son, came into the world that light finally entered the world once again. We're grateful for that. I pray that your Spirit will remind us today that Jesus is the light of men. He shines light into darkness, including the darkness of our hearts, and recreates us and gives us new hearts so that we can finally love you and love our neighbors. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 3 today. During our last meeting, not last week, but our last meeting, we looked at the tribute offering in chapter 2 of Leviticus, uh, but this week we're going to focus on the, the uh, peace offering, uh, the, uh, or fellowship offering is another word that, that works uh, for describing this particular offering. It's the shalomim in Hebrew. It's related to the Hebrew word for shalom, which is peace, as most of you probably know. This is the Shelamim, the peace offering, and it shows up for the first time in the book of Leviticus in chapter 3. So we have, who, remember, uh, who remembers what uh, uh, sacrifice, or uh, well, I'll say today, actually, it's not referred to as sacrifice, but offering. Which offering shows up in Leviticus chapter 1? Who can tell me that? Just do a little review. Ascension, right, the ascension. Uh, and then what's the next one in chapter 2? You got it. You got it. The grain offering. Yeah, so ascensions in chapter 1. The, uh, the grain. What did I say is another word for the uh, grain offering? Tribute. Yeah, tribute. The tribute offering. That's right. And, um, and then uh, this week we're going to look at, the, again, the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And hopefully that it will become clear why. So in order to do this, uh, we're going to really get at what the peace or the fellowship offerings all about. We're actually going to spend most of our time in Genesis and Exodus. Imagine that. <laughs> um, but I, I think it sets uh, the background for us for understanding the peace offering and uh, the, the meaning of the peace offering. And, and, and I don't want to just talk about the meaning of things. I mean, things could have meaning apart from people knowing those meanings, right? So uh, I, I think that all of these uh, offerings or sacrifices, all of what is happening in Israel's uh, worship is uh, catechetical. It's, it's there to teach them and it's there to teach us as it's been included in God's inspired word to us. So uh, I'm hoping that as we unpack the background of Genesis and, and Exodus for the peace offering, we'll really get at, uh, finally come to understand what it's trying to teach us, what the text of Leviticus is trying to teach us about this particular offering. Um, okay, so let's do this. We're going to read all of chapter 3 of Leviticus, and that's on your handout. 
And um, then we will read uh, chapter 7, verses 11 through, I think, 18 is where I'll stop. So let's, let's do that. Um, let's see here. Yeah, okay. Three verses, 1 through 17. We won't read all of three. Uh, my mistake. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is the ascension offering, burns it on top of it, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace, uh, if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he, sh uh, that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. So the Lord is himself partaking of this food. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill, on, I'm sorry, lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute uh, forever throughout your generation and all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Anyone have any suggestions before we move into verse or chapter 7 to read that? Uh, why can't they eat blood? If you just had to guess. And, and there, this is debated, but I mean, anyone have any theories about that? Why can't they eat blood? Yeah, it's right. And so the thought is so what Jason says is that uh, it's basically it's related to uh, that being the life of the animal. And that's right. Right. I mean, the life is in the blood. We know this as early as Genesis nine and um, the life of the animals in the blood. So probably what's going on is um, people in the ancient world were eating uh, and drinking blood from animals and probably from humans at times. Um, and thus trying to take in the life of that thing into their own life, okay? 
to give them life. And so the thought is, uh, many commentators think that Israelites were prohibited from uh, eating blood, of course, drinking blood too, just stands to reason, um, because they have to understand, they're being taught that life comes from God alone. He's the source of life, right? Um, it's, uh, you're trying to get life from a being that itself had to be given life by God, okay? Um, so it's something like that. I think, I think that's why what's, at least in part, what's going on there with that prohibition on eating blood. Um, okay, well, let's move into, it's, this should be your next slide, uh, chapter 7, verses 11 through 21. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that, that one may offer to the Lord. And remember, we're talking about common worshipers here. That's important. <coughs> if he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with a thanksgiving sacrifice. Uh, then, I'm sorry. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings <clears throat> for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of unleavened bread. And from it, he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of <clears throat> his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be, shall be eaten on the day of his offering. The worshiper can offer it, or, or the worshiper, the one offering the sacrifice, can eat it. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. And all who are clean, all who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while an, uh, an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. Okay. Okay. Um, so, ultimately, what, what I'm going to go through some things I'm going to try to convince you of today. I, I want us to see that the peace offering should be understood as the worshiper eating a meal with God. Because I remember I pointed out that the worshiper gets to eat some of this offering. What, por what, what portion can the offerer not eat based off what we just read? Go back to uh, um, chapter 3. Which part is always the Lord's? Which part of the animal? The fat. The fat is exactly. The fat is always the Lord's portion. But some of this fleshy portion, the Israelite worshiper can himself eat. So God and the worshiper partake of the same food, okay? Never forget the context in which this takes place. They share a meal where? In the tabernacle, right? What's the tabernacle? It's a microcosm. It's a what? It's a little mountain. I'm looking for a word. It starts with an E. It's Eden. They're eating with God in Eden again, okay? 
So they're, they're, they're becoming new Adams, new Eves, okay? Um, so we can't forget that. But uh, I want us to see that this is the worshiper eating a meal with God, a covenant meal, a meal that's characterized by God's love. This is the covenant, God's covenant with his people is characterized by love and protection. He's, uh, they're eating a meal with their heavenly Father, the one who uh, has blessed them with all things and protects them, okay? He's opened his home, literally his home, the tabernacle, where he chose to dwell, um, his palace, he's opened it to them. He's invited them in to eat this meal. Um, so, but in order to sort of tell the story about people eating with God, um, we're going to, and, and I think understand and appreciate the richness of eating a meal with God, we're going to have to go back to Genesis and uh, look at some of the overlooked, I think, often underemphasized uh, elements of the story of Joseph. This might seem like a weird place to go, but just bear with me. Um, uh, it's there that we see how uh, the Israelites came to be in Egypt, and it's also there that we see the true nature of Israel's bondage in Egypt. What was that? Yeah, they were slaves, but there's a lot more going on than just being a slave in Egypt, uh, if you read the text closely. Okay? The, uh, I, you'll, you'll, I think this will come out. I think you'll find it interesting. So the first thing I want to convince you of today is that Joseph and those who descended from his father Jacob, also called Israel, they were dead. As they lived in Egypt, they were like the walking dead because they inhabited the land of the dead. Okay, that's the first thing I want to try to convince you of. The second thing I want to convince you of is that when Joseph and the Israelites are finally delivered out of Egypt, well, that deliverance, if they're delivered from the land of the dead, what would you call that? If you're delivered from the land of the dead. Yeah, it's a resurrection. So the second thing I want to convince you of is that Joseph, the Israelites, and we'll just say God's people in general, when they're delivered out of Egypt, they're resurrected from the dead. Okay? Finally, the third thing I want to convince you of is that one of the major reasons God resurrects people from the dead and delivers them from the land of death is so that he can eat with them. He can feast with them. And that feast tells us everything. That feast characterizes our relationship with God. If you go to the, I don't want to, you know, jump too far ahead here, but if we go to the New Testament and read the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, what is one of the, the metaphors regarding food for the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like what? It's a certain kind of celebration. A wedding feast. That's exactly right. The kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. Right? And that's the picture of the consummated kingdom. God's people in heaven in Revelation gathered around a table eating in perfect shalom, peace and fellowship with one another, and that because they're in perfect fellowship with God. So um, that's, those are the three things I want to try to convince you of today. And that sort of sets the background and I think gives, the, um, gives us the significance of the peace offering. Why is it, this is the significance of the peace offering is that you get to eat with God. But that doesn't, that may not sound that great. I mean, like, unless you know the whole, I mean, like in and of itself, I, I have this tendency, people will say things about God and I'm like, well, I mean, I guess that's cool. Like, I mean, I eat with people all the time and, you know, but until you, you and I think God wants us to see him this way, embodied uh, in, in the dirt of history, saving his people. Um, the... Uh, how, how do I, I want to, yeah, God, I'll just say this, God wants to be down in the dirt of history with us, and that's a part of his glory, right? He wouldn't be as glorious, so to speak, if he wasn't 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who saves his people um, from their sins and, and ultimately death, right? So um, that takes real concrete actions. God, God is, uh, refuses to be a God in the abstract. So, um, all right. <clears throat> As we understand the richness of this, I'm hoping what we're going to one way we can start thinking about God and thinking about one another and what we do in our daily lives is uh, can be labeled by the term hospitality. Okay, so um, I remember that I had I was having a conversation with an Anglican priest. His name's Mark Bryan's. I think I've mentioned him once before, um, and. Uh, if you, you can find some of his talks online. If you get a chance, you really ought to. Um, but I, we were talking uh, about the liturgy and, um, and the renewal of uh, the creation and the church's role in that and things like this. And uh, I, said that, I said something to the effect of uh, the, liturgy, uh, the, the Lord's Supper, this, this table here, stands at the very center of reality, basically, is what I said. And he had this really great way of putting it. And I said, and it's from there that everything, uh, the whole world gets changed. Like this, <laughs> look at this, this little plastic table here, like this, is, this might seem crazy, but this, this is changing the world. I mean, <laughs> I think so. I mean, it seems strange, but I really, that's not, in fact, in some ways, that's, that's an understatement. What's happening here at this table is changing the world. And uh, under our noses, our eyes, right before our very eyes, and we don't always appreciate it, I, I think. But he had a really great way of putting it. He said, oh, yes, yes, uh, all of reality sits downstream from the liturgy. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a beautiful, very eloquent way of putting it that I, I, I couldn't do. But that's what I want us to see, that um, all of life sits downstream from the liturgy. And so as we come in here... And God opens his home and table to us and is hospitable to us at his table. Well, we then take this hospitality back out into the world and by opening our homes and our tables to, to one another and to the rest of the world. And so that, that's how this little table here is changing the world. And that's how, if you want to know how the kingdom of God is advancing, this is how. People going to church on Sunday mornings. You know, going to ch church gets downplayed. Well, it's rote, and, you know, we do it, you know, all the time. It becomes meaningless. Go to church anyway. Like, it'll, uh, it'll w one way or another, it will have its way with you if you show up. That's just the way it works. At least I'm convinced of that. Uh, so, um, okay, Let, let's, um, let's go to the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. Um, you may recall that uh, Joseph's brothers, instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. And um, if you go to Genesis 37, you'll read that they sold him to a, uh, a caravan of Ishmaelites. I don't think that's, um, uh, I, don't, I don't think there are any accidents in the text. So, and I think we'll see that here. But they, so they sold him to a, a caravan of Ishmaelites who were traveling from the land of Gilead to the land of Egypt. Okay, and I'm going to read verse 25 of Genesis 37. Uh, 
I'm going to read this verse, and I want you to listen for two things, okay? Listen for the direction that the, tra- that the caravan is traveling. I've already told you Egypt, so there's a different direction you should listen for, okay? Uh, it's related to Egypt, but I'm not looking for the answer, Egypt. Listen for the direction the caravan is traveling. And then second, pay attention to what the caravan is carrying, okay? Just in this verse. Well, here we go. Then they, so <laughs> this, this is funny. Um, the, uh, the Joseph's brothers had, uh, you know, basically assailed him, thrown him in a, a, a ditch, a pit. And then this is what it says. Then they sat down to eat. <laughs> no big deal. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Okay, I'll read it one more time. Then they sat down to eat. Remember, you're listening for the direction they're traveling and what they're carrying. They sat down to eat. And looking up, uh, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So what are they carrying? Gum, balm, and myrrh. What do you think, what do you think those things are used for? Our, our youth know. Brooklyn. Burying people. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it's used for. In which direction were they traveling? Down. Evelyn. Down, yes, down. Good job. They're traveling down. So um, this is important. These are little details in the text that are often overlooked, but they say a whole lot. These little details reveal to us what's actually happening to Joseph. Okay? So um, they, they don't just tell us what's happening to Joseph because you've got to remember uh, what's, what's coming next. You've got to remember the rest of the story, right? All, it's not, who joins Joseph in Egypt? Think about that. We'll get back to that. Okay, so when most of us think about Egypt, we think about, particularly ancient Egypt, uh, we think about mummies and their elaborate pyramid tombs, and this is for good reason. One commentator says this about ancient Egypt, skilled in the practice of mummification as well as the necessary incantations and other requisites for survival in the afterlife, Egyptians were the leading experts on death religiously as well as scientifically, end quote. So knowing this about ancient Egypt, it should be no surprise to us when we read that the Ishmaelite caravan was carrying funerary supplies. Gum, balm, and myrrh were all used in the process of embalming and, uh, embalming, uh, and mummification. So the caravan to which uh, Joseph was sold is a certain kind of caravan. Uh, it's a caravan of death. Now, in addition to carrying funerary supplies, the Ishmaelite caravan was traveling which direction? Down. Yeah, they're going down. They're going down into Egypt. And in fact, I I just, you should do this sometime. It's a fun exercise. Go through, um, go just go through the uh, Genesis and and every time you see a reference to Egypt, be reading around it and and more than likely you're going to find that the biblical Moses, presumably, uh, included the direction that Egypt was. Anytime people are going to Egypt in the Bible, they go down to Egypt. They don't go up, they go down. But when you come out of Egypt, which direction do you think you probably have to go? Up, right? So 
that, that, that is reflected in the text all over. Now, uh, why is this important? Um, well, throughout the Bible, the, uh, have you, how many of you heard of this term, Sheol? Right? You might, especially if you read the Psalms, you're going to hear this term. So throughout the Bible, uh, Sheol, the place of the dead, that place is in the deepest regions of the earth. And the same thing happens with Sheol. When people speak about going there, they speak about going down to Sheol, right? So um, interestingly, there's another connection with Sheol, between Sheol and Egypt. If you think about Egypt in the story of the Exodus, it opens with... Uh, and, and when I say the story of the Exodus, uh, Exodus usually gets divided in a few different parts. But if you just think about the book, you've got um, chapters 1 through 15, roughly, are the story, or like the first section of that book, um, the book of Exodus. So you have uh, the first chapter open up with Israel uh, flourishing, but there's all of a sudden they're met with death, Right. And they're um, surrounded by waters of death, if you think about uh, their existence in Israel. Because on the one hand, they're met with waters of death as they're in Egypt with the Nile River because their children are being drowned in it, right? And then they've got waters of death on the other side of their time in Egypt, namely the Red Sea. Now, those waters turn out to be, they are deadly waters, but they turn out to be uh, waters that God parts and allows Israel to walk uh, through on dry ground. But they're waters of death nonetheless, and they're worried. Because remember, in the narrative, they show up at the Red Sea, and they're like, Moses, what do we do? They're coming after us, and we've got this sea here, you know. So, um, but why is that important? Well, it's just interesting because Sheol's a place in Scripture that's surrounded by water. It's said to... Um, uh, Jonah will talk about it as being uh, like uh, surrounded by the, the deep, the, the tehom. I'm using that, the deep as a proper noun here. The, it does, those chaos waters that covered the earth um, before God started his creative activity. Those are deadly chaotic waters, and Sheol is surrounded by them. And those waters in the ancient world would be the tehom that surrounded Sheol. Those are waters of death. Israel was surrounded by these death waters in the land of the dead. So what I'm suggesting to you is that when we think about ancient Egypt and Israel being there, we need to think about ancient Egypt as Sheol. That's what we're supposed to, we're supposed to think about ancient Egypt and the story of Joseph as the place of the dead. That's what I'm getting at. That's the point. It's the place of the dead. <clears throat> now, if you, uh, if you go, if you descend to the place of the dead as Joseph did, um, well, actually, hold on. Before I say let me say this. I've gotten off script a bit, but just bear with me. Um, let me read this to you. This is interesting. This is uh, from Michael Morales. By the way, this book right here, phenomenal book. You should, I, I highly recommend this. Uh, it's, oh, I'm sorry. It's my, uh, L. Michael Morales, Exodus Old and New, A Biblical Theology of Redemption. I can't recommend this book enough. Uh, you should get it for your children when they get old enough to read that sort of thing, high schoolers. Just, just read it, work through it. It's very, very good. Um, it ties lots of pieces of Scripture uh, together. But um, this is what he says in this book. He says, Descending to the Sheol of Egypt, Joseph has figuratively died. 
so that Jacob, Joseph's father, Israel, later ironically prophesies when he says, quote, I shall descend into Sheol to my son in mourning. This is also on your handout. For he will indeed descend, talking about Jacob, he will indeed descend into Egypt to see his son. Yes, he himself will die in Egypt too. Yet God promised Jacob, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely cause you to ascend. When God does cause Jacob to ascend out of Egypt, he is brought out embalmed, just as Moses will later bring up Joseph's bones, which is in Exodus 13, when the Israelites come up out of Egypt. So in light of these features of the text that I've been trying to highlight, um, we can see that Le- Egypt is the land of the dead. It's like Sheol, and Joseph on his way to the pla- and Joseph's on his way to the place of the dead when he's sold to that caravan. Now, when you arrive at the place of the dead, well, you're just dead, right? That's how we should understand Joseph. Joseph and anyone else who goes with him into the land of the dead, if they're ever going to be rescued from the land of the dead, that's going to be a resurrection. So let's talk about the Israelites as they're in Egypt. Jacob, Joseph's father, along with all of Joseph's brothers, they came to stay with him in Egypt, ending up in the land of Goshen after Pharaoh gave it to them. Remember that part of the story? They show up seeking food. Joseph does the big, you know, reveal. Then he reveals to Pharaoh that this is his family. And Pharaoh's like, wow, I love you, Joseph, so I'm going to bless your family too. Imagine that. Uh, Pharaoh almost, in this case, almost has a, a, uh, a father-like um, relationship with Joseph. Uh, and Joseph is, is uh, a type of Christ. Um, Joseph's like, hey, this is my family. And Pharaoh's like, oh, I'm going to bless them. How's he going to do that? He gives them land. <laughs> Imagine that. Where have we heard that in, this, in the Pentateuch before? He gives them land. He gives them the best land, the land of Goshen, a place... Uh, 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 beautiful and has all that Egypt can offer, the text says. Um, and uh, here's something interesting about this. Uh, even when we hear this, there's this really weird um, part of, of this narrative, I, I, at least I found it strange, is Genesis 46, 30 through uh, 34. Um, but if you read that, Joseph tells them, hey, uh, tells his brothers and, and dad, like, hey, Tell the Egyptians that you guys have been working with flocks your whole life, with, with animals. And then and it ends by saying that, um, I think it's verse 34, that uh, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. That's weird. I mean, it's not weird. What I mean to say is that's interesting. Like, that's what I mean. Um, because if you think about the Egyptians, they're... The, 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 the Egypt is the land of the dead, and Pharaoh, as we're going to see, uh, or I'll tell you anyway, I don't remember if I say this later in the talk or not, the Pharaoh is like Satan in the story of the Exodus. Um, he's associated with snakes and dragons. I won't go into how all that's in the text, but I promise you it is. Um, if you do want to hear more about that, tell me, and I'll email you a little short little paper I have on it. But he, um, but, but Pharaoh, is, he's, he's a Satan figure. He's a demonic figure. He destroys families. Think about that. He starts killing babies, right? He's like, uh, he's like Herod before Herod, okay? Um, he, wants to, he wants to crush the creation blessing. I mean, think about this in Genesis. I don't know how much time I have. I'm riffing now. But like, but to, Adam gets married to Eve, right? What, what, that, uh, what happens right after that in Genesis 3? The fall. Satan immediately goes to work 
right? And what, what's one of the results of the fall? Well, enmity comes between not only man and the ground and his work, but man and woman. Um, Satan hates families. You know, this is a, a common talking point, and people like want to brush this off as right-wing conspiracy talk or something, but it's not. When, when, when a, a Christian who believes the Bible says that Satan and all those who are of Satan hate families and children, they're not lying. It, 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 I'm, not, I'm not getting super you know, political here, and at least not overtly, but they're not, it's, that's not untrue. That's in the biblical text. We just, just, there are lots of ways to see it. This is just one of those ways. I'm not, making, I'm not advocating any policy proposals here. Okay. But, but that's, that's a true thing to say. Now, um, let, let's keep going. I'm sorry. So, um, as the, uh, as the uh, Israelites live in Egypt... Things seem to go well for them for a while. If you read Exodus 1, they're living in that blessing that, that God gives Adam and Eve. They're multiplying. They're filling the earth. They're subduing it so much so that they drive fear into the heart of the Egyptians and the hearts of the Egyptians. And Pharaoh wants to now persecute them and, and cut them down. <clears throat> and, of course, the obvious way he does this is by trying to kill their children. As we fast forward to Exodus 12 with its account of the Passover and Israel's exodus from Egypt, what we see is that the Israelites go up out of Egypt, taking with them the possessions of the Egyptians. They're actually, this is uh, Exodus 12, 36 through 38, says that the Israelites, when they go up out of Egypt, they plunder the Egyptians. That's good news, by the way. That's gospel. That's what happens with God's people when he delivers them. They plunder their enemies. And by the way, the things they took out of uh, Egypt, uh, they were then able to give to God <laughs> um, in, in uh, the building of the, the, the materials for the building of the tabernacle and so on. Now, it's important to point out that uh, the Exodus took place at night, if you look at uh, 1242 uh, in Exodus. And by the time the Exodus was complete, it was morning. Upon their deliverance from Egypt, a new day had dawned. So you, if Exodus 12, 42 tells us this happens at night, Exodus 14, 27 says that the day, when the day broke, um, that's when God caused the waters to f- uh, flood in on the Egyptians and drown them. This new day dawns and God defeats the enemies of his people. <clears throat> and the defeat of God's, the, the enemies of God's people is their salvation. So what I've said so far uh, and by the way, this gets picked up in, in, in the prophets, that this, uh, throughout the Bible, we see that going up and the dawning of a new day are related to salvation and the resurrection. In the prophets, it's, this is referred to as the day of salvation or the day of the Lord's salvation. And all of this is a picture of God joining his people in the darkness, the night of the grave, in order to bring them into the light of a new day, the light of salvation. Um, all of history took place in the dark from the time of the fall until the time Jesus showed up on the scene. If you don't believe me, go read John chapter 1. There was a light coming into the world. So John wants you to see, just by saying that, he wants you to see that all of history has just taken place in the dark, the dark of the fall. Because, see, God came to uh, walk with Adam and Eve, excuse me, in the cool of the day, 
which is the evening. It's the beginning of the nighttime. Adam and Eve sin. So this is where this association with sin and fallenness and death um, this, and darkness all come together. Right? <clears throat> so what I've said so far, I think, lends support to the first two things I said I wanted to convince you of this morning. And that's that Joseph and Israel, while they're in Egypt, in the land of the dead, and therefore in a state of death, um, or while they're in Egypt, they're in a state of death, and that uh, they're saved from Egypt, and they're being saved from Egypt means that they've undergone a resurrection from the dead. They're redeemed from the land of the dead. And so the next or third thing that I want to try to uh, take a look at and convince you of is that the reason why God delivered Israel from Egypt. And what we're going to see is that he wanted to fellowship with his people by feasting with them. Okay? And... Let's do that now. So after a series of plagues, God brings his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. But before he does that, we're told numerous times why he brings them, why he wants to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. In fact, God, through Moses, goes and tells Satan himself why he wants to do it. He tells that serpent dragon figure, Pharaoh, why he wants his people to be set free. Don't forget, remember, they're set free from their work, too, their labor, or toilsome labor. The labor that um, labor's good, but labor that never goes away, from which you never have a rest, that's not good labor, right? Um, Pharaoh is, a, is a, again, he's a, 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 a hater of what God creates. Not only does he hate marriage and families and the seed of the woman, but he hates rest. Remember, I pointed this out a few weeks ago. He hates what God, what God set up in Genesis. He's like, leave me alone, leave the people. I don't want them to go out into the wilderness and have a feast, which I'm about to tell you about. I don't want them to do that. They need to be working. You're distracting them from their labor. In fact, I'm going to make their labor even more intense. So um, let's look at Exodus chapter 3 as God speaks to Moses from the burning bush that's on a mountain. Imagine that, a burning bush on a mountain. We've got a picture of that, too, in the tabernacle. You've got a menorah that sits uh, inside of the tent of meeting in the holy place. So let me read this. Verses uh, 7 through 22 of Exodus chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and, have, and I have heard their, their, cry because of, uh, their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, he's talking to Moses, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said, uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all your generations. This is, a, this is why God is never God in the abstract. That's one of Luther's famous points, and I think he's absolutely right about that. God's either, he's in the concrete in the dirt of history. God is either for you or he's against you. There's no neutrality when it comes to God. And the, the, what he tells Moses to tell the Israelite people reflects that. <clears throat> Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed, I have observed you observed you, and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a, a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Okay. <clears throat> Let's, let me stop there. We're going to get back into that uh, Exodus 5 in just a moment. But notice that in verse 8 of chapter 3, God wants to bring his people up out of Egypt. He's delivering from them from the grave, but notice how he does that. He first goes down to Egypt, just like he said he would in the story of Joseph with Jacob. He told Jacob, I'll go down with you. Uh, if you uh, Jacob was afraid to go into Egypt to see uh, Joseph, but he, God says, hey, no, I'll go into Egypt with you. God himself joins Israel in the grave of Egypt, both with Jacob Israel and with the people of Israel later. In fact, God has a track record of going into the grave with his people, as I mentioned, because he did this with Jacob. So all of this, you all, is what I, I want to get at, is all this is an early statement of the good news of the gospel. That is that Jesus joins his people, his humanity dead in sin. He joins them in the grave in order to bring them out of the grave. There's a very clear way we, we symbolize this and that this gets um, put into our souls um, in, with baptism, right? Baptism is a place where we are said to have joined Christ, Christ in his death and then also in his resurrection. Romans 6. Another thing I want to point out about uh, Exodus uh, 3, 7 through 22 is that God brings his people out of the grave of Egypt in order to uh, give them land, uh, take them to a land of abundance, a land flowing with milk and honey. And that should sound like the place we've discussed before. It should, sound, it should remind you of Eden. Now, finally, I want to highlight, and this is where we start making an overt connection with the peace offering in Leviticus 3, that the fact that God intended to eat a meal with the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt. The first place we see this is in verse 18 of Exodus 3. It's there that we read that the Israelites were to leave Egypt so that, quote, they may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The Hebrew word used for sacrifice in this passage is important. It's the term uh, sabach, and it's used specifically to reference the peace offering that we read about uh, in Leviticus 3. And this is what Peter Lightheart has to say about the term sabach. Well, that didn't go as planned. There we go. Um, I don't have that up here. I don't have that on your slide, but let me read this to you. If we stay with the strict terminology of Leviticus, the word sacrifice, zabak, is not a generic term for offering animals on altars, but is used specifically uh, for the peace offering, often in phrases like the sacrifice of the peace offerings. 
The burnt or ascension offering, the olah, is never called a sacrifice, nor is the, uh, nor is the sin offering, the hatat. And that's the end of his quote. So if we fast forward to Exodus 5, 1, uh, we read that Moses said, he says this to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So the feast that they were going to hold in the wilderness is the same sacrifice, it's the same zabak that's mentioned in chapter 3. And we know this because the feast spoken of in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 is, referred, is uh, referred to as a sacrifice, a zabak, in chapter 5 in verses 3, 8, and 17. Okay, so basically just in terms of the language used between Leviticus 3, Exodus 3, and Exodus 5, it's all using the same terminology to describe the same uh, sacrifice or offering, um, and that's the peace offering. <clears throat> when the Israelites were told that they were going to hold a feast to Yahweh in the desert, they would have understood that uh, at that feast that they were going to have a place at the table, basically. Now, you'll remember from Leviticus chapter 7, 11 through 18, that the peace offering, checking my time, it's an offering that... Uh, they could partake in. The worshiper, him or herself, could partake in. And uh, I'm going to have to really, it's 11.44. I'm really sorry, you all. I'm going to have to skip a bunch of stuff. But um, we need to understand, basically, that God is feeding his people from this sacrifice. He's feeding them from his own table, in his own house. Um, and we actually see this in Exodus chapter 24, when God makes his covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. It's there that the people of Israel, they offer sacrifices to God, and that included the peace offering. But remember, the peace offering hadn't been established, at least not in the way that we normally think of it. Um, and Israel hadn't built the tabernacle yet, right? Um, they, they do that later So uh, in Exodus. So by Exodus 24, we see a mention of the peace offering. And um, what's really interesting about that passage is that, I mean, one, we have reason to believe that the people were eating with God there, but then you see the elders... Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons, these representatives of the people, they travel up Mount Sinai. And what do they do on Mount Sinai with God? They eat with him. They have a feast with God. They beheld God and they didn't die. So this is why God delivered his people out of Egypt. He wanted to restore fellowship with them and uh, he wanted to be, ultimately be hospitable to them from his own table. Um, this is, here's something else I found by Peter Lighthart I thought was interesting. He says, As the exodus is on the horizon, sacrifices of peace offerings are suddenly everywhere. Yahweh demands that Pharaoh let Israel go so that they can sacrifice to Yahweh. And as soon as they get to Sinai, before the instructions for offering peace offerings are even given, they are offering ascension and peace offerings. Shelamim is never used in Genesis. It's used only four times in Exodus, but 60 times in Leviticus and 38 times in Numbers. And this is what he concludes with. He says, The Exodus is a movement toward the peace offering, toward sacrifice. When Yahweh comes to dwell with Israel, he comes to host feasts. He sets up a house and a table and invites Israel to dinner. Exodus leads to Eucharist. That's the end of the quote. And so um, let's, I'll draw this to a close right now. This is, nothing's changed. When God delivers his people from the bondage of sin and death, from the land of the dead, right? Because death is only in the world because sin entered the world. Sin and death entered the world through one man, Adam, right? So when God comes to deliver his people from sin and death, he does so 
by bringing them to a feast. And that's what he does for us on Sunday mornings. That's why we come to church. We come to church as people being delivered from sin and death, having been delivered from sin and death through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And now we actually, what we're doing is a heavenly reality. We are, this, this is not an under, this is, this is almost an understatement, um, but it's going to sound radical. Like we're in heaven when we're here on Sunday mornings. Heaven and even future heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is all come into the present right now on Sunday mornings when we partake of the body and blood of Christ together in the Eucharist or in the Lord's Supper. Where God hasn't changed his mode of operation. He delivered his people Israel from sin and death, brings them to a feast in the peace offering in the tabernacle of the New Eden, and then he does the same thing through Jesus by bringing us to his table on Sunday mornings to feast with him and with one another. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven come into the present. That's, that's what the Eucharist is. And that's ultimately, I think, what the peace offering um, and any sort of fellowship covenant meal in Scripture points to. It all gets fulfilled in the Eucharist, and that gets fulfilled ultimately uh, in the marriage supper of the Lamb at the, he might say, the consummation of history. So uh, that's all I've got for you today. I did run over by three minutes. I apologize, but thank you for being with me. And uh, if you have questions, you can just talk to me after because I know people need to leave. But thanks so much. Appreciate it.